The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. lucky to have mature, godly, loving men and women that we get to serve alongside at this church, and uh, I'm thankful for it. My name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors here. got the opportunity to uh, share the word this morning, and full disclosure, um, I tried to be a Boy Scout yesterday and tweaked my back, so I will be preaching from a stool, and uh, this message will be brought to you partly by Icy Hot today, so <laughs> we'll go with that. And we'll dive in. So I appreciate your graciousness as I try to make compelling points while seated, all right? Um, as I was prepping the sermon this morning, I had the opportunity to kind of sit in my office, and as the sunrise uh, was just welcoming me through my window, I was just reflecting on how beautiful uh, the, the area that we live in is, right? The Pacific Northwest um, if you have a commute that you drive on 84 or the 205, um, we have signs that beckon our attention to the fact that we're right near the Columbia Gorge. Or if we're to go south in an hour or more, we'll be at Silver Falls. Or if we want to go out west and take a day trip, we can be collecting, you know, uh, what do you collect at the beach? Seashells and poking sea anemones, you know, under the shadow of Haystack Rock. It's just beautiful. But oftentimes we can kind of take those things for granted. They become commonplace to us because it's just part of the water we swim in, so to speak. Uh, but uh, being uh, someone who has the opportunity to like jump into nature and channel John Muir a little bit is something that gives me rest. And I've loved, Sarah and I moved up here eight years ago, and one of our favorite things about living in the Pacific Northwest is the fact that, that we are not far from the beauty of God's creation, and we get the opportunity to, to stick our toes in it, and we get the opportunity to explore it. Uh, but we got here eight years ago, and before that, I spent a lot of formative years in Southern California, and there was a whole lot of concrete in Orange County. Uh, but... Even then, we took trips, uh, went to the beach, had the opportunity to go visit uh, Yosemite or hike through Kings Canyon. And so God began to grow in me and in my family a desire to explore this beauty of creation uh, that he's given us. And as we do that, we see news reports otherwise as we have straggling and stranded hikers, but we have um, this sage wisdom that says don't go it alone right? Don't hike alone. Take someone with you. And I had the opportunity to go on a backpacking trip, my first one, on Catalina Island with a good friend of mine when we were still teenagers, and I'll share about that in a little bit. But I had the opportunity to kind of learn firsthand the value of the buddy system. And we're coming to the end of our Driven series where we've been walking through Ecclesiastes and mining kind of practical wisdom from Solomon, who was a fairly astute observer of our world and human behavior. And for those of you that have been with us, you know that it's not a particularly sunny book, right? Oftentimes we get an idea as to what is good by what he talks against, right? Um, there's a, uh, 
a commentator that I was looking at today or this week, Peter Kraft. And he says that Ecclesiastes serves to give us wisdom by the silhouette that it creates, almost giving us an idea of revelation through darkness rather than light. It lays out what wasted effort looks like, what those things are in our lives that are fleeting and not worth our time. And if the book looks a bit like a gray Portland winter, when we have these brief moments of sunbreak, we appreciate the sun's warmth all the more. And so, stepped in to preach this Sunday, and I get one of the sunnier passages, so I'm grateful for that. But it also, Solomon is, is asking us to pay attention, because it breaks the general cadence of the book, which is to talk about those things which are fleeting and not lasting, hevel or a vapor, right? And so if you've got your Bibles, open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, or open your iPhone to that passage, shall we say. And let's start by reading verse 7 together. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling? And depriving myself of pleasure, this also is vanity and an unhappy business. Would you pray with me? And dear Lord, thank you for the gift that it is to be together this morning, to celebrate the life that we have in your son Jesus, and to be transformed by the work of your spirit and the word. Help us to hear today in a way that readies our hearts for what you desire to do in us and in this community today. May we not take you your word, or your work for granted. We pray this in the strong and sufficient name of Jesus. Amen. This weekend, Sarah and I were watching a documentary uh, when we have moments where the kids are either quiet or sleeping. Um, That's one of the things that we do to rest. And this was not a particularly sunny documentary, but it was one that paralleled kind of the cadence of Ecclesiastes really closely. And it followed the career of a, of a photojournalist who spent her career documenting wealth and fame and opulence in our culture and in the world. And so she follows uh, rap artists and rock and rollers and hedge fund managers and beauty queens and She documented their ability to accrue stunning levels of fame and fortune. But since she began her career in the early 80s, she was able to circle back around. And beyond that kind of moment, that high point where they had achieved what they thought was of value, she was able to say, how's that working for you, right? This was not a Christian film. It was actually super gritty, and it was really hard to watch it sometimes, but it was telling Because not even from a Christian perspective, the world was critiquing itself. Talking about how a culture that values material wealth and status above all else leaves us empty. And without a single exception, as Sarah and I watched this, the people that had sought so hard 
with the nose to the grindstone to accrue this wealth and this fame and fortune, lamented that they had mortgaged those things which were truly important in life. In tears, they realized that they had mortgaged relationships for those things which they thought they needed. And as the credits were just about to roll, the last dialogue you actually see in the whole documentary or here is a gal who's looking at some of those photos of a bygone age, and she said this. As I was leaving home, I told my mom, one day you're going to see me walk the red carpet. I've lived on private jets, crystal flowing nights. I've partied with rock stars and celebrities and actors. But you know what they say. Be careful what you wish for. Ecclesiastes, in chapter 4 for us, paints a tragic picture of a lonely man that worked hard, mortgaging relationships for better profit margins, and he sits alone, working for himself with no one to share the fruits of his labor. And as we look at our miser, it can be easy to have a little safe distance as the reader, in denial to say that could never be us. And yet I hope that we're brave enough this morning through the Spirit and with practicing a bit of self-awareness to ask if we have that same propensity, if that could in fact reveal some of the values that we espouse. Maybe not with our mouths, but oftentimes with our behavior. If you missed the last few weeks, Ash has been preaching on, in Ecclesiastes through two very you know, kind of softball-type topics, money and vocation, Right? And if you haven't had the chance to listen to those, I I encourage you to do that. One of the things she shared is that our ability to work well is dependent upon our ability to rest well. And our ability to rest well lies in our ability to trust in the finished work of Christ who invites us to enter his rest. He invites us to take up Jesus' yoke and to learn from him, and to walk in the good works that our Savior has prepared for us to do ahead of time. As we look at our miser with his attention determined, his work has yielded a reward. But because he's prioritizing the what above the who, he's left with what Ecclesiastes describes as an unhappy business. With his nose to the grindstone, he never reflects on who his work is for. One of the most compelling points that I found in last week's sermon, it's kind of rattled in the empty spaces in my head, is that competent work in the service of others is a form of love. The diligent worker in our passage was relationally stunted two ways. Number one... He had no one that he was co-laboring with, and he had no one that he was working for. Look at the text, 7 and 8. He's a person who has no other, either son or brother. ESV, it says, he never asks, for whom am I toiling? He didn't have a sibling to work alongside or a son to inherit the business once he was gone. Often the dignity is not in the what we are working on, but the who we are working for. 
Perhaps the most tragic thing about the miser is that he never wakes up. He never changes behavior. That can't be us. The pattern we see in Scripture is that God blesses his people so that they can be a blessing. It's never for themselves alone. Are we Dead Sea Christians? Or are we Columbia River Christians? Right? The Dead Sea has a number of sources of water that flow into it, but nothing that flows out. And so the water stagnates and it's salty and it's lifeless. Be like the wild and woolly Columbia. Live with and for others. Allow the life and work of God through the Spirit to flow through you. We have been blessed so that we can bless others. Why does Solomon invite us to see the miser-like corners of our own hearts, urging us to look beyond ourselves and to posture ourselves towards others? I think because, just like in that day, working with and for others goes against some of the deepest held cultural values that we have, right? We celebrate the self-made man, the empowered woman who doesn't need anyone else. They've blazed their own trail. They've amassed the necessary wealth so that they can account for any unforeseen emergencies. They don't need government help or even worse, charity to bail them out. But if you've read through Genesis, how many of you guys are reading through the Bible with us? Anybody? Raise hands. How many missed a few days? Yeah? Okay. All right. Back, back on the wagon. All right? Right there with you. But it's interesting to look at Scripture, to read it at high volume, and to see some of the themes that develop. In that first video that the Bible Project puts on, it talks about the idea that and our desire to be autonomous and to have power and control, we mortgage those things that God has intended for us. And this is a pattern that happens over and over throughout the book already. We've only read through Genesis and parts of Exodus. And we see it playing out again and again. And that drive severs our relationship with God and others. Why do we do it? Why do we desire to be self-reliant people who, who need nothing from nobody? Because people are fallible. And when they prove to be unreliable, we experience collateral damage in our relationships. And so it's easy, easier to not extend ourselves so that we're protected against the pattern of being let down or sinned against by those we've chosen to trust. But what happens? We end up looking like life-size Heisman trophies, right? Where we're keeping everyone at an arm's length, bracing for the next impact, but that's a lonely way to live. And the problem with that, one of them, is that the failure that I'm quick to pin on others and the sin that brings division is true of me. And it's true of you. It's not just others. I'm unreliable. I can make decisions that are selfishly unself-aware. And plenty of times I run out of energy before the task is finished. And so if you've ever asked that question or even sit here today asking, what am I doing this for? You're not alone. You're also in a better place than the miser in Ecclesiastes 4 who never stopped to consider why he was working so hard. And so today, don't simply listen. 
Hear what God is inviting our self-focused, battle-scarred hearts to come out of. We don't have to toil alone. We weren't designed to live isolated lives. Let's look at the sunbreak in our text. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9 through 12. In this, there's no vanity. There's no hevel. There's no false hope. And this pattern of Solomon considering the absurdities of our life on earth gives way to something that is of value. Solomon wants us to wake up and pay attention. Stand in the warmth of the sun. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The verse says two are better than one and that they have a good reward for their toil. What makes their reward good? What's the difference? Both worked hard. Both seem to be compensated. So what makes it good? I ask because it it can be easy for us to read that and from our cultural framework to say, oh, they make good money, right? Many hands make light work. But we have to go beyond that low-hanging fruit to what Solomon is drawing out by comparison, right? That silhouette. Why are two better than one? Why is their reward good? Remember, the miser toiled alone while the partners toiled together. It has more to do with company than it does with compensation. The miser worked in isolation and at the end of his days was alone with his cash, but that's it. And the two worked together and had their cash, but also received the reward that comes from working with others. Two are better than one. A few years ago, while studying at Multnomah, I had the opportunity to work in the discipleship recovery ministry at Portland Rescue Mission. And there I met a man named Obi. He was born in Kenya. Beautiful man. And one day we were talking about the challenge of addiction. And one of the distinct challenges is that it isolates you. and turns men and women into lone rangers into well-worn ruts and patterns. And sometimes out of defense, they walk alone with no one to walk beside them. And so as I was picking his brain about existing and life and, and the idea of trying to work the program to grow in discipleship at the harbor, which is a place where 30-plus men are living in community all at different phases, 30 dudes in any house is a challenge, I asked him how it was going, how he was able to sustain hope, why it was worth pressing into others as opposed to working his program alone. And he stopped me and he said, in his accent, which I will butcher, Harambe. I didn't know what that meant, so I looked at him and then he described, Harambe means go faster alone, go farther together. I like that. Harambe is a Swahili word, which means pull together. And it highlights the fact that we may be more quick and more agile, alone, not needing nothing from nobody. But if we allow ourselves to walk in cadence with others, we will have a greater reward for our toil. I believe Solomon would 
not in agreement at that mention of harambe, go faster, alone, go farther together. So I ask, who has walked with you this week, this month, in this last season? Have you slowed down enough to let others join you on the journey? This text gives us three examples of the benefits of company. If they fall, one will lift his fellow up, but woe to him who is alone. When he falls, he has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Friends, help us when we fail. Friends, help us when we're vulnerable. And friends, help us when we're threatened. All three of these metaphors make sense to us, but they would also ring true in the ears of the original readers as traveling wisdom. Ecclesiastes was written at a time where people traveled mostly by foot in an arid wilderness climate without modern conveniences like streetlights and Google Maps, and traveling safely was a tricky business. These were all real-world scenarios that highlighted that it's more safe when traveling with companions than to brave the journey alone. We know this, right? From the earliest days, school field trips or camping or trick-or-treating, what are we told? Find a buddy. Stick with your buddy. Danny, where's your buddy? Right? Over and over. It's better when we have someone, generally speaking. Pick your friends wisely. That backpacking trip I talked earlier about reinforced that idea of a buddy system. We planned for a simple overnight trip. I'm mostly a car camper before that point, and so he was gracious to me. He picked a day trip, only five miles to be logged, but we would take the ferry from Long Beach, where we live, to Catalina Island, and then we would hike over the ridge to a secluded cove on the back side of the island. We got a picture of that there, Mr. Tut? Yeah, pretty nice, right? I didn't have like a digital camera back then, so this is through the miracle of Google, all right? So this isn't an actual picture of the trip. But it was stunning, and that's the harbor that we were, we were hiking towards. And so by the time that we arrived after our five-mile hike, we were famished, and so we started a fire. We're bachelors, teenagers. We have a low, low bar for the quality of food, and so we, we had brought ramen and hot dogs uh, to nourish us. But if, for those who've hiked before, you know that any food tastes good after a long day of walking in the wilderness. And so after a full day of exploring, we didn't need much time before we were out. And during the night, as will happen, the temperature dropped, and I was very grateful for my mummy bag that I snuggled in. But at the time, Solomon was writing Ecclesiastes. They didn't have packable, synthetic, down-filled mummy sacks to keep warm that you could drive down to your local REI to get, and travelers would cover themselves with whatever tunic they had or they brought on the journey. And if they had a buddy, they would sleep close together for warmth. As I was studying this week, I was like, I got to share this one. Um, this is a little historical note, and it says, the nights of Palestine are cold, and a lone traveler sleeps sometimes close to his donkey for warmth in lieu of other companionship. There you go. I'll take the sleeping bag. Interestingly enough, as the sun woke us up in the morning and I unzipped my t- 
tent door for one last view of the beach and the sunrise before we packed up and hit the trail to make our ferry. To my surprise, we were greeted by a visitor to our campsite. There we were, two scrawny teenagers face-to-face with a real live American buffalo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was 30 feet from our door, and the noise of the zipper got his attention. And so there he is, all 1,500 pounds, horns flanking his giant plate-sized head, chewing his cud, watching our movements. And suddenly the nylon of the tent did not feel like a sufficient barrier, right? (laughs) And so we just sat there in our sleeping bags, two dudes with a bison. What do you do when you're faced with a buffalo? We decided to pack in shifts. One would pack their bag while the other kept watch, making slow movements so not to spook the animal. And as we packed up and started on our hike, we literally walked back to back for a quarter mile, like, like a cartoon. And once we had finally turned the corner, we felt comfortable to pick up the pace. Now, if you're wondering, how did buffalo end up on Catalina Island? Are they native to that? No, but they're also not good swimmers. So in the 1920s, there was a silent film that was shot on the backside of Catalina Island. And when the movie was done, they picked up and went back to the mainland and left the buffalo. And they have been very productive in their time there. There's now over 200 buffalo on the backside of Catalina Island. And they usually mind their own business. But every once in a while, things go sideways, right? Actually, as I was looking for this photo on Google, on the first page, I found an article about a hiker that had been gored on Catalina Island and had to be airlifted off just a couple years back. So I'm not just a wuss. There was real danger. (laughs) So, But because we had started our day on Buffalo time, we had to pick up the pace. And so we had to go off of the main trail and blaze our own path over the ridge. And as we did that, it was a little more touch and go, right? Um, we weren't as much on the trail anymore, and we were near some sheer cliffs, and so there were a few spots where we were traveling back to back and careful of all our movements. But when you know, we turned one of the last quarters before finishing our journey, and there, now 10 feet from the trail, was another buffalo. <laughs> and so, what do you do? We're 10 feet away. We can't backtrack because we have to make the ferry. We, do we scare the beast? Uh, Do we make ourselves look big? We chose the third option. We tried to make ourselves look big and so we walked by the buffalo as if we were under arrest, back to back. And it was the slowest five minute period in my life, kind of like practicing spidey sense, kind of hiking and we made it safely. I'm here to tell you, it was, it was beautiful. We felt more alive through that experience. But I was grateful to have a friend to journey with. And God has been gracious to me that in every season of my life, he's provided men and women that have walked alongside me. And when Sarah and I were newly married, and even when we were young parents, we had gracious couples who cared for us and loved us in those sleep-deprived first years of kiddom. And as we moved up to Portland, God gave us families who would walk beside us as we felt like strangers in a new place. And not long after moving to Montevilla, we were just at the Scruggs townhomes while we were at Multnomah, right there behind Skate Church, and we got pregnant. 
And it was touch and go for a bit because uh, Lily, as I've shared before, um, when, when Sarah was pregnant with Lily, she had preeclampsia, which means her body thinks that the baby is a sickness. And so it made that eighth month of pregnancy pretty scary. And we were in the NICU for an extended, or we were in the hospital in the NICU for an extended period of time. And so when we met with our nurse, we were disheartened to hear that there was a 50-50 shot that that would be our experience again. But we didn't know until we'd walk through it. But the beauty is we walked through that season and as we prayed is we, we didn't walk alone. We lived in the townhomes, as I shared, and we had the community of seminary families who walked with us arm in arm. And as I was reflecting on this moment with Sarah, she said, when her hope was fragile, there were others who pointed her to God and bolstered her faith. There we were. And tearful conversations in the kitchen would turn into impromptu prayer meetings. Families would ask how we were doing and bring over surprise meals. We lived close enough that they were able to support us in meaningful ways. And there were these group of ladies who regularly prayed for one another and, and the needs of their families. And in this vulnerable season, one of the ladies, Deborah, who was also from Africa, regularly prayed for the boy that God was knitting together in my wife's womb. And she prayed that he would come at full term and without any complications. And if she would see Sarah in passing from across the courtyard, she would point to her growing belly and she would say, no complications. <laughs> and God was gracious to our prayers and Elliot was born and he surpassed his due date. And so before he was born, the next time that Sarah saw Deborah, she said, okay, Deborah, now have the ladies pray that the baby comes. <laughs> he was born in August. She was ready. And we held our baby boy in our arms, and aside from a C-section, there were no complications. Who are you walking with? Who's there when you fall? Who's there when you feel vulnerable? Who's there when you're threatened? My family and I have had the chance to grow in relationship with a handful of people over the last year and a half in our community group. We've taken time to hear one another's stories. We open scripture together. We pray for one another and always over a delicious meal that we share with and eat together. Just a few months back, Nadia, who was killing it on the base this morning, um, was, was introducing us to some friends that she had on campus. And she introduced us as her church family. I love that. Jim and Dara, who host our group, talk about their desire to have a tribe of people to belong to. They know that raising kids, that being a light, that following in the way of Jesus is not an easy journey. And belonging to a community group helps to build a tribe of people that walk together with Jesus and one another. Our group is not for the faint of heart. They're, we're outnumbered, kids to adults. Katia brings her quinoa, and Jim brings his smoked meats. There's diversity there. Nerf darts and trampolines play as much of a role as do prayer requests and pie on Sunday nights. But we live close enough in proximity that we share in trusting ways with one another and we know we don't walk alone. Who walks with you? Are you in relationships that allow you to share vulnerably? Can you express your feelings genuinely? Are you walking closely enough to others that when you fall, they are there? Do you have someone that can walk arm in arm or back to back into the teeth of the buffalo with you? 
Just important, just as importantly, are you a friend like that to others? If things go sideways, who's there to be with you? After the service or during the prayer time, I'll be here. And we'll have some pastors and staff. And if you would like to learn some of the ways that you can get plugged in in this community, we'd love to talk about that. Full disclosure, we're still figuring things out. We don't have all the bells and whistles of a larger church, but we're small enough that everyone has the opportunity to know, to be known, and to belong. And this, this theme of community and relationships is all over the place in Scripture. We have been created out of community and for community. Genesis chapter 1, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in ordering creation by the power of His Word, said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God created us out of the love and the power and the authority that exists in the Trinity. And in this perfect, uninterrupted relationship, He created us for relationship with Him. But if you read the story, you know that that's not all. In the next chapter of Genesis, we learn that we're also designed to be in relationship with others. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make another helper suitable and fit for him. You see what we learn about God and about ourselves from the creation in Genesis? It is not good for us to be alone. It was never intended for us to be that way. I read a paragraph this week that deeply unsettled me. And so I thought, I'll share it with you guys. So the words and thoughts of Dan Allender and Tremper Longman, and they wrote a book called Breaking the Idols of Your Heart, and it walks through Ecclesiastes. And here's what they say. Even before the fall, the desire for an intimate relationship with another human being was a legitimate one. One that could not be satisfied even by an intimate connection with God. What an utterly remarkable, almost terrifying reality that God made us to crave relationship with someone else besides him. That's not the entire story, though, because God clearly intended that both people in a, in a healthy, close relationship would remain connected with him as well. When any link is missing, God, us, and others, we experience a loss that has consequences for the soul. Why does that make me uncomfortable when I read it? Because it pushes against that me and Jesus idea. Perhaps you're like me. In times where you've been hurt by others, perhaps even other Christians, we retreat and we think, I don't need anybody else. Just me and Jesus. I can go faster. I can travel lighter and perhaps even safer on my own. And in that place of retreat or isolation, May we hear the voice of God, our loving creator, who tells you it is not good for you to be alone. You may feel alone, but he will never leave or forsake you. He's designed us for relationship both with him and with others. And as we experience his love for us, as we come to know in repentance his forgiveness and his grace, we from those reserves reach out in relationship from a heart that has been healed and is being made whole in him. When we try and function as believers in the me and Jesus mindset, Paul says that we're like an eye that says to the hand, I have no need for you. Or a head that says to the feet, I have no need for you. 
No part of the body can function autonomously from the whole. The eyes need the hands. The heart needs the feet. And when we function as a body in love for one another, Scripture says that we shine for Jesus. That the world may know that the Father sent Him. On the other side of the spectrum, if we walk around without love or relationship, we are just endlessly beating a tone-deaf symbol that nobody likes to hear. And it's a lonely business. To walk with others, we must match our pace to continue in a journey with others. It comes at a cost. We must get outside ourselves and listen to and perhaps even prioritize the needs of others. We must practice repentance and forgiveness, sometimes giving it and other times receiving it. If we're in it for the long haul, we must extend trust so that when we trip, there's someone to help us. And if we're vulnerable, they can provide comfort. And when we're face-to-face with the buffalo, they've got our back. Let's close here. When the religious elite were challenging Jesus, trying to catch him in a double bind, they asked him what was the greatest commandment in the law in Matthew 22. How did he respond? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend the law and the prophets. When asked about the most important thing, Jesus speaks about our relationship with God and others. What deserves our utmost attention is to love God with all that we are and to allow that to transform how we engage with others. We can and we will talk about other meaningful things while we're in community, but everything else comes after that and hangs on that and is built upon that. So much in this world, guys, I don't have to tell you, this feels like a puzzle. And it's hard to find meaning in the affairs of the world and even harder sometimes to to find our place within them. But may we choose to spend our time in lasting things seeking to love God with everything and to love and to walk with our neighbors with his love, understanding that we are better together. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we need you today. Help us to be a community that marvels at the fact that we are yours. Help us to recognize that we need others today as well. May we experience your love, which brings life where there was once death. And Jesus, out of that love, would you help us to follow you as we walk with others? Amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.